1: Live.
2: You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
3: Baby, D. Oh, happy, happy day. Oh, happy happy day.
4: Good morning, this is your your early Sunday morning gospel program. Morning Spirations here on Talk to You and Jam Radio. Our morning scripture is coming from the the division of Psalms, that's Psalms 10.
0: Is knit. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thine hand. Forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He hath said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it. For thou beholdest mischief in spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none." The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed. That the man of the earth may no more oppress.
5: They don't even know where you've been. There's a strength in your bones.
4: thank you for answering our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for just keeping us throughout the day, throughout all night, last night, last as we sleep, and waking us up early this morning. You know, it wasn't long, God. children. Remember, I talk to your family and generate your family. Let's serve the track through your will. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for
2: living and we done a little mini-series of sorts on the devil, and we're going to wrap that up, and it's entitled, Overcoming the Devil's Tactics." and our text is Ephesians Chapter 6, so turn over me. I've used up a lot of my time during announcements, and I don't really have as much time as I'd like, but uh, we already heard a great message from Pastor Paul Eaton on mothers, wasn't that wonderful? I really like that. I'm going to start wearing clean underwear from now on. I already do. Why did I get into that subject? Okay. I wonder if you ever get sick and tired of being ripped off by the devil. Does it ever seem to you that in your Christian life you take one step forward and two steps back? Have you ever felt condemned for your sin and wanted to just give up the fight? If so, listen up, because I have some good news for you. Your life as a Christian does not have to continue on this way. I want to close this little mini-series that we've done on the devil with a few words about overcoming his tactics. I'd like to share a few things with you the devil does not want you to know. And I would like to focus on one last tactic that he uses with great effect in the life of the child of God. And then we'll lay out a plan of action that works. And you have God's word on that. The last tactic I'd like to identify is one that the devil uses over and over again. First of all, we know that he wants to bring us down into sin. First, he will tempt us, he will entice us. He'll say, Oh, go ahead and do it. I won't tell anyone if you won't. No one will ever know. You can trust me on this. Go ahead. And then we do that thing that we know we should not do. And once we fall into sin, the devil is there to lay his double whammy on us. And what I mean by that is first he tempts you to sin, and once you give in, then he accuses you. The Bible refers to him on more than one occasion as the accuser of the brethren. He is identified in Revelation chapter 12 as the accuser of the brethren that accuses us before God day and night. You would think that Satan having led a person into sin would just lead them to suffer the consequences, but no. He wants to make sure that the disobedient Christian is doubly defeated. He wants to drive you away from the presence of God. And we see this illustrated in the book of Zechariah, the third chapter. where we read these words, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebukes you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now here we are given sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what happens when a believer sins. Here we find God as the judge, Joshua, the high priest is a defendant, and Satan is a prosecutor trying to prove Joshua guilty. And when you and I have disobeyed God, Satan moves into that finishing stroke, accusing us before God. Did you see what this person just did? First a whisper in your ear, you call yourself a Christian? After doing what you just did, you miserable hypocrite, you failure, you should never show your sorry face in church again. You should just give it up. Don't even bother reading the Bible. Don't even think about praying. You have failed. You have fallen short. And then he stands there before God, and he says, Did you see what that person just did? Are you going to let them get away with that? No doubt when David sinned, the devil was there accusing him. Lord, or he wouldn't refer him to it in that way. God, did you see what David just did? This man after your own heart, as you like to call him, he sinned against you. Committed adultery. He tried to cover it up with murder. Are you going to let him get away with that? Or when Simon Peter said, no doubt the devil was there. Did you see what Peter just did? He denied you three times. Were you listening, God? Now, let's understand something. When we sin, we often experience something called guilt. This is not necessarily a bad thing. If we move ahead, In this series, we're going to talk about what sin is, and we'll get into this. But guilt is not a bad thing because it is a reaction to something that has happened in our life that usually is not right. But there can be good guilt and bad guilt. Guilt can be something like our body, when it feels pain, it alerts us and tells us not to proceed any further. You're stepping on a sharpened piece of glass. Uh, That asphalt is hot. Uh, You know, and if that symbol goes up and it tells you either to find a place of shade or to get some shoes on or to take the necessary precautions so you will not bring greater pain upon yourself. Guilt kicks in when we've done something wrong. It's the body's warning system, or rather I could say it's a moral warning system saying this is not good. But sometimes the devil can use guilt to drive us to despair, to drive us to condemnation. So when you've sinned, and I don't say if you've sinned, I say when. Because even the most committed Christian will have his or her moment of sin. I wish I could say it was not true. but it is. We all will sin eventually. But it's important that we distinguish between Satan's accusation and the Spirit's conviction. A feeling of guilt and shame is not a bad thing if it comes from the Spirit of God. But if it drives us to despair and hopelessness, we've listened to the wrong voice. Listen, when the Spirit of God convicts you, makes you aware of your sin, he uses the Word of God in love and brings you back into fellowship with your Heavenly Father. But in contrast, when Satan accuses you, he uses your own sins in a hateful way and seeks to make you feel helpless and hopeless. I want you to listen to that again and think about it. When the Spirit of God convicts you, he uses... God's word in love to bring you back into fellowship with the Father, but in contrast with Satan accuses you, he uses your own sin in a hateful way and seeks to make you feel helpless and hopeless. The devil wants to drive you to despair. He wants you to experience regret and remorse, but never repentance. He wants you to be accused over and over again so you will focus your attention on yourself and your sins. And as long as you are feeling guilty, you are under indictment and you are moving further and further away from the Lord. But in contrast, God's Spirit says, This displeases God. It's wrong, but I love you. Come back to the cross. Judas Iscariot listened to the devil. He went out and he hung himself in despair. In contrast, Peter looked into the face of Jesus and wept bitterly, but later came back into fellowship with Christ. Remember the simple truth that summarizes it. Satan will always seek to drive you away from the cross, but the Holy Spirit will always draw you to the cross. So you have a choice. The next time you sin, you can either say, that's it, it's hopeless for me, I might as well give up, or you can come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I've fallen short, help me, I'm sorry, I repent, forgive me again. Oh, but the devil will say, you're not worthy to approach God. Do you think God would hear your prayers after what you have just done? Now, oh, wait a second. Understand this. My access to God has nothing to do with what I've done and everything to do with what he has done and what he has done. My access to God has nothing to do with what I've done. I don't have more access to God when I've done well. In other words, if I've read my Bible today and I've prayed and I've done all the things that seem to be right, oh, now God will hear my prayers. But if tomorrow I fail to read, I fail to pray, and I flip up, oh, now I can't go to God's presence, I've lost access. No, access is always through what Christ has done, through the shed blood that took place on the cross of Calvary. Let's go back to that courtroom scene we mentioned recently. Here's Joshua standing condemned like we do in these things. Satan goes in for the kill, and suddenly is stopped in his tracks. Why? God says, this one is mine. They are a brand plucked from the fire. God steps in, says, hands off. This one belongs to me. You can't touch him. You can't touch him. They're mine. This is illustrated by Jesus when he said to Peter, Satan has been asking that you be taken out of the care and protection of God, that I have prayed for you. Our defense against the accusations of the devil is the interceding Son of God, our representative, our advocates, our defense attorneys, if you will. First John 2, one says, My little children, these things I write to you, for so you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 8.33 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it not God who justifies? So who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So yes, it is true that the devil is there accusing us, but it's also true that Jesus is there interceding for us, saying, back off. They're a brand plucked from the fire. They belong to me. You say, oh, but I'm not worthy to go to God. Can I be blunt with you? You never were worthy. You never will be worthy. On your best day, you were not even supposed to being worthy. So get rid of the thinking that says, I must be worthy to approach God. You'll never be worthy. I have been made acceptable to God through what Christ did for me on the cross. As the scripture says in Ephesians 1, I've been made acceptable in the beloved. It's because of Jesus that I can come. He has made me worthy because of his blood shed in my place. So that's important to you know. Don't ever let the devil drive you away from the spot, where you are find to get. Perhaps some of you have come to this service today and there is sin in your life that is unbeknownst. There are things in your life that need to be resolved. There are things that you have done against God that you know are wrong and you've just let them lie. It's time to deal with them. It's time to come and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry for what I've done. And be reconnected with him today if you need to do that. I'll give you an opportunity to do it in
1: the moment.
2: I mentioned earlier that I was going to tell you something the devil does not want you to know. The devil was soundly defeated at the cross of Calvary. How he hates this truth. How he would love to loom large in our minds and imagination and stand there as though he were the equal of God himself but we know from our other messages that the devil is limited in what he can do. We know that his judgment is sure, and we know that the decisive blow was dealt against him and his minions at the cross. Prior to his supervision on the cross, Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he came, was convicted of judgment. And then he explained of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged, He's an Satan. Then, through his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. You say, now wait a second. If Jesus destroyed him, if he dealt this blow against him, why is it that we still see Satan on, his, on the scene doing his dirty work? Because God has allowed. It would be nice if God would remove the devil. And then we no more symptoms. It would be nice if we no longer had to observe evil and that day will come, but until that day we must recognize this is a temporary situation. There's an interesting verse in the book of Revelation. It speaks about the double answers from the last days. And the scripture says he does these things because he knows that his days are numbered or he knows that the end is coming. In other words, the devil knows that judgment is sure, so he's seeking to wreck as much havoc as possible until that final day. The devil knows that Christ is going to come back. The devil knows he's going to be judged and dealt with and cast into the lake of fire. He's trying to make as much trouble until that day. Even if some liberal theologians don't believe it, the devil does believe that Jesus is indeed coming back. But we know that he's been dealt with at Calvary, and we know that when we put our faith in Christ, we came under God's divine protection. Jesus has told us that the Father is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. When Jesus cried out those words at the cross of Calvary, it is finished, no doubt they reverberated through both heaven and hell. No doubt the angels heard as well as the demons, because those three words, said it's over with, your stranglehold in humanity is stopped. Christ has now accomplished the purpose he came to accomplish. The phrase that is finished can also be translated, it was accomplished. What was accomplished? The work the Father had given him to do. Colossians chapter two says that at the cross Jesus supplied principalities and powers of power. And he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us out of the way, kneeling it to the cross, all the accusations against us, all of the condemnation against us was put upon Jesus so we don't have to live under it any longer. Now listen, therefore, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Sometimes you hear Christians say, oh, God, give me victory. Lord, help me with this sin. I need your victory. as all they're waiting for some emotional surge to come on them that's going to deliver them once and for all. Listen, you don't have to fight for it. You fight from it. God is giving you this victory already at the cross. It's yours through what he has done. So instead of saying, Lord, give me the victory, you should say, Lord, thank you. I have the victory, and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And you won't give me more than I can handle. Thank you, Lord, that I have everything that I need in you right now. And I need to start utilizing Let's never lose sight of one vital thing. This is the Lord's battle. It's not us versus the powers of hell. Power. It's not our personal world. We're simply soldiers under command, under the direction of our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation. It's for us To do what he tells us to do. Now he told us in this battle we need to suit up. We need to put on the armor of God. And I would like to close by identifying a key piece of armor that we need to aggressively utilize in spiritual battle. Something that will work when temptation comes your way. We read about it in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11. Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the strategies and deceits of the devil. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, having done all the things, Stand therefore, having girded, girded your waist with truth, and put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Time does not permit me to give as much attention to the various pieces of armor of life. But we know that each piece of armor plays a significant part. So, may I point out to you that there is only one piece of armor that is listed that is primarily offensive as well as defensive, and that is the sword. In other words, when I go into battle, I don't beat my enemy with my shield, or try to defeat him with my belt, or chase him down with my sand, or throw my helmet at him. I pull the sword out of the sheath and I use it. And so, we're told, take up the sword of the Spirit. And when you are tempted, the most effective weapon that God has given to you, the Christian, is a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is modeled for us so beautifully by Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness. Whereas the devil levels temptation after temptation at him. Jesus uses a sword of the Spirit. It says, it is written, it is written, it is written. The devil says, why don't you turn a rock into a piece of bread? I know you're hungry, Jesus said. It is written. Man shall not live, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil says, well, why don't you worship me right now? Jesus responds, it is written, you shall worship the Lord God only. Him only shall you serve. why don't you cast yourself off from here? And the angels will catch you, Satan says, quoting Scripture out of context. Jesus responds, bringing the Scripture back into context. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. The sword of this it works. Now you may be talking to someone about your faith in Christ. And you may quote the Bible. Well, you know what the Bible says, Well, oh, hold on. I don't believe in the Bible. Oh, is that true? That's right. I don't believe it. word really. it? And have you read the Bible? Well, uh, no, I haven't. But it's full of contradictions. Really? And I have one right here. I would love to find one of those contradictions. Why don't you show me one? Well, I know they're in there somewhere. Well, here's what the Bible says. Well, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, what are you going to do? Stop quoting it to me? That's like going into battle and you pull your sword out and your opponent says, I don't believe in your sword. How's that? I don't believe that sword is like real, man. That's like your truth. Okay, I don't accept your truth. My truth is that sword is not sharp. I'll tell you what, Pastor, after I've rushed you through it a few times, you'll know it's real. God says his word will not return void. I don't care if a person believes it or if they don't. It won't return void. And it will prosper in the place where God sent it. So you use the sword of the Spirit. You pull it out. Not to beat people over the head with Not to decapitate the person you're speaking with. Think of the sword more like a scalpel in the hand of a talented surgeon. Seeking to bring life, not death, seeking to liberate, not bring in the bondage, bringing the truth of God's word to a person. How wonderful it is to use this word. Right? The devil knows the Bible too. It reminds me of, a, of an alleged incident that happened where someone saw the great comedian W.C. Fields reading the Bible. Now Fields was known to be an alcoholic, a womanizer, certainly not a man who was a student of Scripture. And someone was shocked to see... W.C. Fields, reading the Bible, would say, why would you, W.C. Fields, read the Bible? His response was, looking for loopholes. Well, you might say that the devil has been reading the Bible for a long time, looking for loopholes. I know that was not a good imitation, but you weren't charged anything to come here today, so don't be too demanding. The devil quotes Scripture. And I've, used, I've seen the devil beat Christians down with passages taken out of context. The cults do this with great effect. Distorting the truth of Scripture, a little bit of truth, immersed in deceit and lies to mislead people. I ran into a guy the other day after i He came up to me after the service. Really looked distressed, forlorn, Poor Lord. Dark circles under his eyes. I really need to talk to you. I said, okay, what do you mean? He said, I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And I said, really, why is that? he said, well, you know, I read the Bible that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it's the unforgivable sin. And I think that before I was a Christian, uh, I had done that. I probably insulted the Spirit at one time or another, and I think I blasphemed Him. So I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I'm forgiven. I think I'm going to hell. And I said, really? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He said, yes, I do. I said, do you believe he died on the cross for your sin? Yes. He said. I said, have you turned from your sin and asked for God's forgiveness? He said, yes. I said, then you have a blasphemy. Because you see, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting the work that the Spirit has come to do. And according to Jesus, when he has come, speaking of the Spirit, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit has come to show us our need for Christ and to bring us to the Savior, to blaspheme Him, is to reject His worth altogether. It's not to throw off some insult and ignorance in our days of non-belief. We probably blasphemed everything in that time. No, it's to reject His work wholesale. It's to say, I don't want God's forgiveness, and that is the only unforgivable sin. All other sin will be forgiven except the man or the woman that says, I don't want Christ in my life, because then the Bible says, how can you escape if you may to the to salvation. I said, you've not done that. Here you are saying that you believe in him, you put your trust in him, you're following him. And I said, on the authority of God's word, I say to you, God has forgiven you of your sin. You have not blasphemed this church. It was like a burden was lifted off of the spirit. His face <laughs> just yeah. And then his friend came up to me a week later and said, no, the guy you know what I had talked to a week ago without yeah. a blasphemy of fear? He said, you You see, the devil... To words and use it to and it is so wonderful to God's word in its context and bring it to liberation, the sword of the spirit. And the devil will come to you when you've sinned, and he'll say, "You failed. You've sinned. You've gone too far. There's no forgiveness to you." And you pull the sword out of the sheath, and you say, "It is written, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." Who <coughs> it There you go. Ah, the devil says, you're wrong. God condemns you. Ah, you're wrong. Because Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore no no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Touché. You strike again. The devil says, no way. You're going to fall again. You're mine. I'm going to take you down. No, you're wrong. It is written, John ten twenty eight. Jesus said, I will give them eternal life, and neither shall they perish, nor any man pluck them out of my hand. It is written, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ, and you thrust again. It's the Word of God. Use it, because temptation is going to come your way. Amen. And when we know the Word, we can deflect the blows. That come against it and strike out offensively with the word of God. This is why we must commit scripture to memory. It's been said, a well-worn Bible is usually the sign of a life that is. Falling. Or another way it would put, a Bible that is falling apart is usually the sign of a life that is not falling apart. I like to see that. You know, Bibles that are, are marked up, and they've, they've got, they're just coming apart. Now, that's a good sign. Okay, I hope you're using it. I hope you're not slowing it up. Yeah, I think you got to make a preacher's Bible. i mentioned this. I talked to some of these guys who make Bibles. They can make a preacher's Bible. You need to put like, steel binding in it. Because we preachers, we give our Bibles to effect. You know, the Bible says, oh, the poor Bible. It's just He's shaking it all over the place, holding it up and doing this kind of stuff.
6: Why do we do that? I don't
2: know. We probably think it looks good or something. But don't just shake your Bible or beat it or point to it. Read it and memorize it and hide it in your heart. It's good to carry a Bible in your purse or in your briefcase, but the best place to hide the Word of God is in your heart. And as the psalmist says, Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you, Psalm 119.11. Then in Psalm 37.31, the psalmist said, The law of God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. Hide it in your heart. Know it. And when temptation comes, you can use it to defend yourself. And when opportunity comes, you can use it to share the truth of the gospel with those that do not know. Remember, the enemy tries to drive us away through accusations that the Spirit of God always brings us back to the cross of God. Remember, the devil has been defeated. His days are numbered.
7: Judges tells the story of Gideon who went to war against the powerful Midianites. It says in the seventh chapter that the Lord spoke to Gideon saying, Get up, go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. And if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. Well, oh, friend, did you hear that? God said, if you are afraid. Look, That was a big imposing army down there. But amazingly, God did not scold Gideon for his fear. Instead, God anticipated those fears. What's more, God provided a way for Gideon to overcome those fears. Friend, if you are afraid, remember Gideon, and remember that the Lord foresees all your fears and hesitations. Plus, he'll always, always provide a way out, a way to overcome.
8: Billions of dead things. This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word. If there really was a worldwide flood, what would the evidence be? Well, billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And this is exactly what we find.
3: Around the globe, there are
8: massive graveyards with millions or even billions of creatures buried together. For example, around the Grand Canyon, over a billion nautiloids are buried in an area over 10,000 square miles. Seven trillion tons of buried vegetation have formed massive coal seams on every continent. Trillions of microscopic creatures from chalk beds stretching from Britain to the Middle East and even across the Atlantic to the U.S. These examples, they point toward Noah's global flood.
7: To learn more about the compelling evidence for a global flood, visit our award-winning website of AnswersInGenesis.org. That's AnswersInGenesis.org.
9: Listens Morning Inspirations on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right
6: here. This is Anne Graham-Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. All around us are broken homes, broken hearts, broken hopes. But God never intended us to be broken. He didn't just create us, plop us down on planet Earth and say, Happy Birthday, now you can guess your way through life. God as our Creator has specific directions for our lives. Psalm 119.2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with a whole heart. If we live according to his directions, our lives work. We're blessed and we experience life the way it was meant to be lived. If we ignore or reject his direction, we do so to our own detriment and experience much less than he intended. His directions form a pattern that prevents breakage of our lives to help mend the brokenness already present. Listen to me. Trust in his word, then follow his direction. Your life will work. This is Anne Graham Lotz.:
8: Satan's methods: There's nothing new. Answers with Ken Ham, whose ministry is building a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati, Ohio. The Apostle Paul warned us about Satan's ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul warned the Christians that Satan would use the same tactics he used on Eve in the Garden of Eden. And how did he trick Eve? Well, he created doubt about God's word, knowing it would lead to unbelief. Did God really say that? Satan asked Eve. You know, that's the same question many Christians ask today about Genesis. Did God really say six days? Did he really say worldwide flood? Did he really say death came after sin? One of the most effective ways to create doubt about God's word is by teaching evolution in millions of years. And Satan knows that if you can get people to question the book of Genesis, which is foundational to the rest of the Bible, then this doubt will ultimately lead to unbelief regarding the rest of Scripture. We need to accept God's words in Genesis and not let the devil use his old tactics to spread skepticism about the entire Bible. Can we really accept the book of Genesis as true history? Did Noah really build an ark to escape a flood? Solid answers are given in our 95-page pocket guide, and for your copy, all you have to do is call us toll-free and make a donation of any amount, 1-888-89-ANSWERS. Today's the last day to call and request the ARC guide, so call 888-89-ANSWERS or go to our website of AnswersOffer.org.
2: Hey, churchgoers, looking for the little morning inspiration? Well listen to Morning Inspirations and the Jam Radio Network with
5: Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to live. He has impossible time after time. He hailed out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish prize. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish, five loaves of bread. He can walk on water, turn water into wine, no special effect. He has a head shot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all.
4: and
3: me
1: Can a landlord
10: legally evict a church from leased space? With a word of
11: caution for today's pastors, here's attorney David Gibbs Jr. of the Christian Law Association.
10: An expanding church decided to lease space in a nearby building to use as an activity center for their youth. The contract they signed allowed them to provide education, recreation, and community service. A few years later, the church decided to switch buildings with the youth and have their main worship in the leased building. When the landlord learned that worship services occurred in the building, the church was given an eviction notice. The church contacted the Christian Law Association, believing that religious discrimination was occurring. After reviewing the documents, one of our attorneys advised this wonderful church that this was not a case of constitutional discrimination the church had simply violated their written lease agreement if it's been a while
11: since you've been to our website you really ought to check it out christianlaw.org is a virtual tool shed of legal tools legal advice for pastors and ministries answers to difficult questions links to helpful pdf files and much more So check it all out at ChristianLaw.org ChristianLaw.org
3: Hi,
12: this is Donnie McClick and I've got a personal note that I'd really like to drop in your spirit today. I want you to understand the blessings of God and how they're supposed to enhance our lives. Blessings are not always financial. But the Bible says in Proverbs 10 and 22, it says the blessings of God makes us rich and adds no sorrow. This richness that it's speaking of deals with our lives being full, our lives being complete, our joy being prevalent and noticeable, us being seen as someone who profits in God. The richness of God deals with a soul that is healed, a spirit that is in touch with Jesus. Our lives being rich is having our family whole, as having our friends close, And even our enemies reconciled. The blessings of God makes us rich and will take your sorrows away.
11: Today we're taking a close look at one of God's greatest gifts, the gift of smell. This is the Creation Moments Minute. The ability to smell is one gift we often take for granted. That's probably because we usually identify things more quickly with one of our other senses. At the same time, Thanksgiving dinner would not be the same without the smell. Some of the most unlikely creatures have a sense of smell. Believe it or not, even fungi have a sense of smell. Worms have organs on their heads to sense odor. Ticks carry their scent-detecting organs on their feet. This arrangement would not work for us. Mollusks? Smell through their gills. The salmon uses smell to find the same brook in which he was spawned. Lizards and snakes use their tongues to detect scents. More about the gift of smell tomorrow on the Creation Moments Minute. I'm Darren Marlar.
9: At just 21 years old, Roland knew he wanted to own a business. But when he opened a dry goods store in Haverhill, Massachusetts, it failed. Over the next 10 years, Roland opened three more stores and had three more failures. Despite these disappointments, however, he was learning and still trying. Moving to New York, he opened his fifth store, his fifth, and it took. Today, Roland's Dry Goods Store is known as R.H. Macy and Company. This is Howard Butt, Jr. of Laity Lodge. And the lesson here is failure, of course we can all ace, <laughs> if we study hard. Mr. Macy reminds us that while stores may close, school stays open in the high calling of our daily work.
2: Yo. Jam radio network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. My people. Yeah. My
4: people. Yeah. The foundation of the United States rests on the sweat of my people. Every enemy of the
3: B. <clears throat>
13: That you became a man and died on a cross and paid the price. my life, to be my savior. leave.
5: Yet you gave
3: to prove your love to me